Well, happy Palm Sunday, OCC family, and a big welcome to all of our guests who are joining us online for the very first time. As we heard in the scripture that was just read, today is the day that we celebrate the anniversary of when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Today also begins what's known as Passion Week, and Passion Week is a time we remember the events of Jesus' life between Palm Sunday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, I've included a daily reading plan for Passion Week that you can access this morning just below the sermon video. There's going to be a box that says, Get Message Notes. And there you're going to find notes that you can take and follow along with the message. But you can also find the reading plan at the bottom of those notes. This year, we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel as a church family as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Resurrection Sunday. Now, in this reading plan, you're going to find a different passage from Matthew's gospel uh, for every day of the week starting today. And really, I don't think there's a better way that we can prepare for Easter than by reading and reflecting on God's word together. Well, this week and next week, we're going to wrap up our series, Room for Doubt. And we're going to do so by asking this question, is Jesus really the Son of God? I want to begin today's message by reading a couple of paragraphs uh, from the introduction of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. So in his introduction, this is what Lee writes. For much of my life, I was a skeptic. In fact, I considered myself an atheist. See, to me, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking, an ancient mythology of primitive superstition. Lee goes on to write, as for Jesus, didn't you know that he never claimed to be God? He was a revolutionary, a sage, an iconoclastic Jew, but God, no, that thought never occurred to him. I could point you to plenty of university professors who said so, and certainly they could be trusted, couldn't they? Let's face it, even a cursory examination of the evidence demonstrates convincingly that Jesus had only been a human being just like you and me, although with the unusual gifts of kindness and wisdom. But that's all I'd ever really given the evidence, a cursory look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. I, I found a fact here, a scientific theory there, a brief quote, a clever argument. He concludes this part of his introduction with these words. He says, as far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people. Or so I thought. This is how Lee begins to share a little bit of his own story in his book, The Case for Christ. You see, throughout the book, Lee talks about the spiritual journey that he embarked on, a, a two-year process for him, uh, following his wife's decision to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and how after nearly two years of investigating the evidence for Christianity, uh, he too finally became persuaded uh, that God's word, the Bible, is accurate and trustworthy. He, he became convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, and he decided to believe in Jesus, to give his life to Christ. You know, during his two-year journey, Lee encountered a number of historical facts that led and helped convince him that Jesus really is the Son of God. 
In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, we read these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, the disciples answered Jesus' question initially with the common view of the day, a view that a lot of people had, that Jesus was one of the great prophets who had somehow miraculously come back to life. And yet there were others in Jesus' day who thought he was nothing more than a good teacher or someone who was kind and compassionate to others. The Pharisees that Jesus had multiple interactions with were convinced that Jesus was performing miracles by the power of Satan. But then Jesus turns to his disciples. He singles them out. And really, that's the point of this text. I don't think Jesus was really concerned about what all the other people thought about him. He wanted to know what his disciples believed. And Jesus turned to them and he asked them the most important question that anyone can answer in this life. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter answered Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, Peter was convinced and confessed Jesus as divine and as the promised and long-awaited Messiah, the true son of God. Like Peter, are you convinced of this truth as well? Maybe in your life you've believed in Jesus for a long time, but doubts still arise. They still take root in your mind, when somebody else questions your faith. Maybe you've never believed, or maybe you're like Lee Strobel once was, someone who thinks that Jesus isn't the Son of God and that he never claimed to be. If you have doubts and questions about Jesus today, you know, I believe that like Lee Strobel, you can become convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. So what's the evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God? Why, why should anyone believe it? Did Jesus ever claim that he was the Son of God? And if so, did he ever back up these claims with any kind of evidence? And then maybe the most important question that we're going to look at towards the end of this message and, and certainly next week, why does it even matter that you and I have an answer to the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16? And these are all questions that we're going to address over the next couple of weeks. And my hope, my prayer is that by addressing these questions, that you too would be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. So let's transition, I think kind of naturally, just right into the, the first question for this morning. Did Jesus really claim to be the son of God? Let's take a closer look at a few passages from God's word, knowing that as we discovered a few weeks ago, in our message entitled, Is the Bible Reliable? You can go back and listen to that message in our podcast if you haven't already. We know that we have all kinds of great reasons to trust what the Bible says. We know that God's word is accurate and trustworthy. I want to reread Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16, but this time I'm going to add verse 17 because that really gives some context to the content. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13 when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but 
Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replies in verse 17, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So Jesus is very clear in this first passage that yes, he is the son of God. Something that that he said was actually affirmed by God the father himself. Let's look at another passage that also uh, makes this truth very clear. So in John chapter 5, after being challenged for healing someone on the Sabbath day, uh, Jesus equated the work that he was doing with the work of his heavenly father. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 18, this is what we read. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he also called God his father thereby making himself equal with God. See, the religious leaders tried to find a way that they could kill Jesus, not only because he had healed someone on the Sabbath, I mean, that would have been bad enough in that time, but because he had also called God his father, making himself equal with God. It's important to understand that these religious leaders, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said these things. See, Jesus was not just an adopted child of God like like you and I can become when we place our faith in Jesus. He was claiming to be the unique son of God who shared the nature of divinity with God the Father. Later in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus is again talking with the Pharisees and he makes another bold claim when he says these words. John 10, verse 30, he says, the Father and I are one. The Father and I are one. Now, the Greek word for our English word one in this verse does not mean that Jesus and the Father are the same person. We know that from Genesis to Revelation, we know that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rather, this word means that Jesus and the Father are of the same nature. See, his listeners would have understood exactly what he was claiming, and in response, Again, because they knew what Jesus was saying, they decided to pick up some stones and try to kill Jesus. Listen to how this scene plays out in verses 31 through 33. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. See, Jesus is making a very clear claim that he is divine, and his listeners understood exactly what he was saying. In fact, they condemned him for it, and they they wouldn't even allow themselves to accept or believe what Jesus was saying. What's interesting to me when, when I read this text is that Jesus had ample opportunity to clear up any kind of misunderstandings about what he was really trying to say. I mean, Jesus could have said, come on, guys, let's, you know, let's sit down, let's have a conversation. I can clear up what I was trying to say. You can clear up what you thought I was trying to say to you. But Jesus never did any of that. Instead, he actually did the opposite of that, deciding to reinforce his claims, which further confirmed that they had correctly understood what he was saying in the first place, that he was the son of God, Jesus is divine, fully God and fully man at this point, and equal in nature to God the Father. 
Let's look at one more passage that I think highlights this first question. In Mark chapter 14, this is during Jesus' trial, uh, prior to the crucifixion, Jesus was asked this question by the high priest, and then he gave this answer in response. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 60 through 62. says, Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. And then the high priest asked him, he asked him this question, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And here's what Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, in verse 62 here, I believe that Jesus was quoting Old Testament scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel chapter 7, we learn that one like the Son of Man was going to be given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would, would know him, would worship him, and obey him. His rule would be eternal. It would never end. His kingdom would never be destroyed. This son of man has sovereign power and is worshiped by all the peoples and nations of the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, you know that that only the one true God can legitimately be worshiped. So by coupling the title son of man with the description of his coming on the clouds of heaven, Jesus was clearly claiming that he was the one described In Daniel chapter 7, Jesus was explicitly identifying himself as the one, capital O, who would rule forever over all peoples and over all the nations of the world. And again, the response of those who were listening at the time, it really says it all. Mark chapter 14 will continue in verses 63 and 64. It says, then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, why do we even need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they cried. He deserves to die. You know, if Jesus were claiming that he was only human, there wouldn't have been this kind of reaction, this kind of response to what he had said. I think a lot more could be said about this first question, but I also believe that the answer to the question is so clear. Over and over again, Jesus pointed out that he was the unique son of God, God in human flesh. Let's look at the second kind of sub-question for today. Did Jesus back up his claim to be the son of God with any solid evidence? Did Jesus back up his claim with any solid evidence? I think anyone can claim to be God. Anyone could claim that, and they'd certainly be wrong. I mean, I could claim that. You could claim that. Many people throughout human history have, in fact, claimed to be God. The question, though, is whether the person making the claim can back it up with solid evidence. You know, Jesus could, and he actually did in a number of ways. So I want to highlight four ways that I believe Scripture shows that Jesus backed up his claim to be the Son of God. And what we're going to do is briefly look at three of those this morning, and then we're going to save the fourth fourth one for next week on Easter Sunday, and you'll see why we're going to do that uh, towards the end of this message. 
So the first way that Jesus backed up his claim was with what we call messianic prophecies. Messianic prophecies. I left just enough space there to write that in this morning. (laughs) Messianic prophecy. So a few weeks back, I mentioned that Jesus fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the one who was God's special anointed one. If you remember back, we talked about Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before the time of Christ. And Isaiah 53 predicted the coming of a suffering servant who would be punished in our place. And it even says that he would be pierced for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. And this prediction that he would be pierced was predicted centuries before crucifixion was even a thing. And then you have Psalm chapter 22, written about a thousand years before the time of Christ. Psalms 22 describes Jesus' suffering in detail. And I would encourage you to go back and read Psalm 22. Then you have Micah chapter 5, specifically verse 2, written about 650 to 750 years before the time of Christ. And Micah 5 predicts that the Messiah would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem. And we know that this is exactly what happened. Well, I want to share just a few more Old Testament prophecies with you this morning that point more specifically to Jesus's divine nature. So we have Isaiah chapter 7. This is a passage that I think is more traditionally read at Christmas time. You'll recognize this. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. So when was God with us? If this was an Old Testament prophecy, when did this happen? Well, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 in the New Testament, it was when the Virgin Mary gave birth to her son. We know that this is Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 is a passage that comes just a couple of chapters later. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called, and I love this, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Church, isn't this amazing? See, the coming Messiah, the son who would be born would be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Jesus' divine nature was predicted centuries before he even arrived on the planet. These messianic prophecies, they back up Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. So what other claims back up this point? Well, I believe that Jesus' sinless life does. If you're taking notes, you can write in Jesus' sinless life. Jesus' sinless life. You know, if God is holy, and we believe that he is, and if Jesus really is the Son of God, then surely Jesus would have proved it by living a life that was completely free of sin. Jesus' enemies knew this. In fact, they followed him around for years, watching closely for any kind of character flaws, uh, moral or ethical inconsistencies, or even just old-fashioned human mistakes. You know, all of us, our lives fit into these categories. We've all messed up in these ways. But they were never able to find anything. They couldn't pin anything on Jesus. They actually had to resort to paying false witnesses to invent stories 
in order to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. When they couldn't find anything to pin on Jesus, you can imagine their frustration when Jesus points out, kind of throws back in their face the reality of his sinless life. We see this in John chapter 8, verse 46, just the beginning of the verse. Jesus says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? See, he knew they'd been following him around, trying to pin things on him. But he's saying, which of you can truthfully pin anything on me? Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? You know, in a number of places, Jesus intentionally challenged his listeners uh, to test him. Here's what I mean by that. He, he welcomed those who wanted to question his claims and his character as long as they were willing to follow the evidence to its conclusion. I don't know of any other major religious leaders who ever made the claim to be sinless. But Jesus' extraordinary life backed up his extraordinary claim to be the Son of God. And the sinless life of Jesus serves as another strong indicator that this claim was true. Jesus' sinless life backs up his claim to be the Son of God. So what else do we have that, that helps to back up this claim? What other piece of evidence? Well, the final thing is Jesus' miracles. If you're taking notes, you can write in Jesus' miracles. I think a great piece of evidence is Jesus' miracles. You know, in addition to fulfilling the, the messianic prophecies that we see in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New, uh, in addition to the sinless life that Jesus lived, Jesus backed up his claims by doing a variety of miracles, from walking on water uh, to healing the sick, turning water into wine, and even raising the dead. He actually points to these miracles as evidence to back up his claims. And this, these two verses that I'm about to read are so crucial for the message today. John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, we read this. Jesus says, Don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do his work, believe, and then what's the word? In the evidence. Believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I've done. Even if you don't believe me, then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. See, over and over again, Jesus performs these miraculous signs, these miracles, and he didn't do this. You need to understand this. He didn't do this to impress the people that were around him. That wasn't his aim. That wasn't his goal. He didn't do this to merely get the attention of people, but to reveal to us who he really was, the Son of God. See, Jesus made the claim on multiple occasions that he was, in fact, the true Son of God. Church, today we've looked at a few passages that highlight this truth. Um, but for additional reading and maybe some additional study this week, I want to encourage you uh, to go to the book of John. Begin reading there um, because it's in the Gospel of John where we see seven different times that Jesus uses the words, I am and we know that each time Jesus said this, he was claiming to be God. In fact, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John was to have a written account of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that others would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they would have eternal life. 
We've also looked at some of the evidence that highlights Jesus' divinity. We talked about messianic prophecies, um, the, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New through Jesus. We've talked about Jesus' sinless life. You know, people followed him around, specifically the Pharisees, trying to, to highlight or pin on him ways that he messed up, but he, they couldn't find anything. We've talked about the miracles of Jesus, how all of these things reveal to us who Jesus really is. You know, truthfully, and this is just for me, and we're, we're all wired differently. We all are created with a little different bent. But I think any one of these things would be enough to get my attention. But there's one miracle, one piece of evidence, as, as Jesus actually uses that word, that stands above all the rest. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. We're going to celebrate the resurrection we're going to wrap up our series, Room for Doubt, by looking at the evidence for the resurrection. I'm so excited about next week. In fact, at this point in the message, I want to encourage you to make plans now to join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. Make plans to invite a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, someone that you know this could be a great opportunity for them to take that first step and connecting with other believers and hearing truth from God's word. It's going to be a great week as we celebrate, as we worship. There's going to be some special elements to the service that you're not going to want to miss. So join us next week as we wrap up our series, Room for Doubt.